In case we didn't have enough to worry about, earlier this month, news broke about a whole new, out-of-left-field, terrifying threat. Murder hornets. Now, if the name itself doesn't do it, the description of these vicious insects is enough to send shivers down your spine. The nearly two-inch predators can single-handedly destroy an entire population of a honeybee hive in the most gruesome manner within just a few hours. So far, the American honeybee population, which was already waning, remember the Save the Honeybee um, campaigns of previous years? So far, our honeybees have absolutely no recourse. The so-called murder hornets are impervious to their stings. The bees can't flee far enough or fast enough, and they can't protect their queen. What this means, the articles warn, is that if we don't act quickly to prevent these foreign invaders from establishing a foothold in America, they will devastate not only honeybees, but all of the fruits and flowers that rely on them for pollination. A catastrophe in the making. Not only that, but in Japan, where the murder hornets originate, 50 people a year also die from their brutal stings. In the days since the story broke, murder hornets have become an internet meme one memorably shows the calendar pages. On April, it is written, at least it can't get any worse. And then right next to it, May, emblazoned on the calendar page, murder hornets. Beneath that, though, you may ask, what would possess me today on Shabbat to bring up such a grim topic on this moment, on this morning of beautiful celebration here in Shul. It's worrisome, and we don't need worrisome. It comes with a familiar warning. If we can track, contain, and quarantine this threat while it is small and isolated, we have a chance to stop it. But if we can't, oi, and we don't need more oi. Perhaps more importantly, there's absolutely nothing, you or I or almost anyone other than the wasp experts can do to stop the murder hornets in their tracks. When the news first broke and my kids anxiously brought it up around the kitchen table, I have to admit that I wanted to have words with the journalists. What kind of a sadist puts murder hornets, a concrete manifestation of all of our nightmares, on the front page now? What's more, people are sick and dying all over our country, losing jobs and businesses. Disrupted supply chains mean shortages that we're seeing with our own eyes on a grocery shelf near you. And there are real anxieties 
and uncertainties that go so far beyond imported hornets. So why raise them here, now, on Shabbat? Because of a little article that appeared a few days ago. It didn't make front page news or have nearly the splash value of the fearful first, but the article was an important coda to the murder hornet scare. It turns out that over time, Japanese honeybees have developed an unbelievable adaptive technique to conquer the seemingly impervious hornets. As soon as a murder hornet enters the hive, the Japanese honeybees swarm them in a big huddle, raising the temperature around them with rapid body vibrations until the hornet is cooked. Attacking alone, the honeybees stand no chance. The only way to do it is together. As we enter the graduation weekend that wasn't, this side of the murder hornet story feels like a metaphor for our moment. On Sunday, like many of you, I was supposed to be sitting in the hot sun watching my favorite member of the class of 2020, my nephew Mitchell, graduate. That's not happening. But you know what happened instead? An adaptive shift that included personally delivered lawn signs and a moving car parade through multiple cities and towns past every single graduate's home with family and friends alike honking and waving and playing musical tributes. As I watched Facebook's national graduation ceremony yesterday, with its scrolling screen of name after name after name of high school and college students throughout our country, one of the speakers called this year's class the unified generation. Ironically, at this most isolated moment, the only way to do graduation was together. While every previous graduation has been parochial and particular, this year's move was every school, every student united. Imagine that as a template post-coronavirus for rebuilding our broken world. We have adaptive change right here this morning. This morning, people are joining our services from all over the country and indeed all over the world, coming together because of you, Orly and Rachel. From your living rooms, you are the modern iteration of an ancient Jewish art adapting to the moment that we find ourselves in now. When the temple was destroyed in the year 70 CE and the priests could no longer offer sacrifices, Judaism could have fallen apart. But we didn't. Instead, the rabbinic system reimagined what worship could be. You both did that 
today. You rose to this moment, and the whole Jewish people rises with you. In this moment, which calls for that ancient, adaptive capacity to be renewed, I want to share with you a story that ran this week in the New York Times about a woman named Cornelia Wertenstein. At 92 years old, she has been teaching piano for more than 50 years. Every week, for 50 years, students, young and old, come to her home for their lessons. As the Times reported, they practiced for an hour on the Chickering and Sons piano that she and her former husband, both Holocaust survivors, bought for $600 in 1965. Her students played the classics. They learned by time-tested methods that she had been using since she first started teaching piano back in Romania at the age of 14. If ever there should have been a template for resistance to chain, it was Cornelia Wertenstein. But when coronavirus hit, the 92-year-old surprised her students by learning how to FaceTime and insisting that her students set up cameras angled at the piano so that she could watch and come prepared to their appointments with piano, book, and pencil all ready to take notes and to learn. She didn't miss a beat. And when it became clear that in-person recitals would not be happening, she arranged a virtual recital, recording this message for her students. She said, with great pride, I introduce my students who prepared themselves with discipline and determination in difficult circumstances. When I was a little girl, I couldn't go to public school because of my religion. And they created a little school in the basement of an old building, which sometimes had heat and sometimes didn't. But great minds and achievements came out of that school, which taught me, in any situation, you can strive, learn, look ahead, and have dreams. That is what she does. Making music transformed her relationship with her students from one where they paraded through her home to one where they opened their homes and shared their world with her, bringing them closer. Making a virtual recital happen, which included one of the parents giving her a full Zoom tutorial so that she could participate, transformed her students and their families from individuals with a transactional relationship, there to learn music and leave, to a community bound to each other by their care for her. And the day after the recital, she was back to her lessons with them, looking ahead. As the Times story concluded, she has been doing that every day since. There is much 
that the coronavirus has taken from us, but so much that it can't. The moment we are living in today calls for adaptive change. Let us meet it like the Japanese honeybees together. We've